First up, Donald Trump wants Nikki Haley out of the Republican race for president. She says she's not going anywhere. So Trump's using a familiar tactic, bullying. The former president is insulting his last rival standing, threatening to blacklist her donors. That came right after Haley announced her campaign raised more than a million dollars in less than 24 hours after her New Hampshire loss and Trump's election night speech that was more grievance march than victory lap. Last night, Haley was back in her home state of South Carolina, which votes four weeks from now, and she was defiant. Donald Trump got out there and just threw a temper tantrum. <laughs> he pitched a fit. He was, he was insulting. He was doing what he does. But I know that's what he does when he's insecure. I know that's what he does when he is threatened, and he should feel threatened. CNN's Kristen Holmes joins me live now. Kristen, what are you hearing from your sources in Trump world about how he is reacting behind the scenes, never mind in public, and how they feel it's really going to go down with regard to Nikki Haley? So, you know, Nikki Haley, they're saying that Donald Trump feels threatened. When I'm talking to a senior advisor, I don't know that threatened is the right word. Annoyed, angry, as you said, she's clearly underneath his skin. He is angry that she didn't drop out. And I'm told that he was angry that she had a victorious tone in her speech in New Hampshire after she lost Donald Trump by double digits. The facts are that in South Carolina, which is the next competition that they're going to face off in, they do believe that Donald Trump has a significant lead. And just to kind of break down what we saw when they were threatened by Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. They poured millions of dollars into television ads. They announced event after event after event. So far, we have seen no announcements for events for Donald Trump in South Carolina and zero dollars in spending. So if it's a threat, it's definitely not the same reaction that they had when she was closing in on the polls in New Hampshire. However, he is angering. He is angry and he is lashing out. And what's almost kind of comical in some ways about this uh, social media post that says that anyone who donates to Nikki Haley will be blackballed from MAGA world. There's a very big difference between what they did with Ron DeSantis saying, if you work for Ron DeSantis, you can't come work for us. And when you're talking about donations and money, because the people who run Donald Trump's campaign and pay the bills on Donald Trump's campaign would like to see that money come in. So the <laughs> idea that some big dollar donors are, you know, blacklisted seems a little bit questionable, particularly we just heard Tim Scott yesterday saying the quiet part out loud that they hoped that the donor money came in after South Carolina. They'd hoped it came in after Iowa, hoped it came in after New Hampshire, hopes it coming in now. So clearly that seems a little bit off in terms of you're going to really turn down that money if it comes. That is very, very a comical is the right word, but it's so true. And it's such a good point. Uh, it's not like they're going to say, no, Mr. <laughs> Billionaire, please don't give us that check. We'll, we'll be fine without it. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much, Kristen. I really appreciate that reporting. Joining me here in Washington is The Washington Post, Josh Dossie, CNN's Melanie Zanona and Ramesh Ponoru of the National Review. Um, let me just add to what Kristen was just reporting, her great reporting from another one of our colleagues, uh, Elena Treen, who is saying uh, that this is the feeling that Donald Trump and his advisors have about Nikki Haley. Before she was a gnat, now she is an enemy and Trump plans to bludgeon her in the lead up to South Carolina. What are you hearing? <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely true. And he's already doing that. One of the fascinating parts about why he was so angry the other night is she sort of pulled 
his own move against him. The Trump thing of going out and saying, I won, even though the results are not in there. She didn't quite say she won. No, she but conceded taking a and congratulated him. Tone, yeah. right? As my colleague Ashley Parker wrote in the post today, it was almost like game recognizes game. That she, she went out and did the thing that he likes to do on him. Mm-hmm. And it really infuriated him. I mean, his team is planning to And also do- went after his age and his mental acuity, which is a, yeah. obviously a sore spot for him, it's- something he wants to use against Biden. His team is planning to sort of bombard her in South Carolina with attacks on, uh, I think she said in the past, praising China for bringing jobs to the state, for wanting to raise a social security age or retirement age on some people. Some of the attacks, I'm sure, will be false, as they have been in the past in his campaign. Um, But what they also are planning to do is use a number of South Carolina elected leaders against her, the governor, both state senators, Nancy Mace and Charleston. They've sort of gotten all these endorsements from South Carolina politicos, and they're going to fan them out across the state and have them all sort of on the attack against her or what they're planning to do. We'll see if it works or not, but that's sort of part of the strategy for where this campaign's going. We have all seen, well, maybe you guys haven't, but I have seen what happens when uh, somebody doesn't get out of a race on the Republican side. I'm thinking George W. Bush, John McCain in 2000, and things can get very, very ugly in the state of South Carolina. And, you know, We all know that the Trump campaign, they have been, just like most campaigns do, they have been collecting what they believe is a pretty strong dossier uh, of hit hit jobs on Nikki Haley. We've seen some of it. They believe just on the issues, immigration and Social Security, and you're saying that there's there's more to come. Um, I just want to read something that caught my eye from uh, Joni Ernst, Republican senator from Iowa. She didn't endorse, but she was... Uh, very vocal in her uh, praise for Nikki Haley when she was out with her on the campaign trail. She was asked, this is according to Igor Bobik of the Huff Post, about Trump making fun of the dress that Nikki Haley was wearing on that night. Asked about Trump making comments about Haley's fancy dress last night in Iowa, this is yesterday, Ernst said, I thought she looked great, which is a bit of a mic drop, and I think she said, Joni Ernst said so much in that one sentence, uh, telegraphing a lot of different things about the way that a lot of people on Capitol Hill are prepared, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, but are preparing for yeah. the whole Trump of it all once again. And you know, it wasn't just Joni Ernst, Ralph Norman, he is a conservative, he's a member of the Freedom Caucus. He was on with Caitlin Collins last night, and he said, you know, Trump can get away with these nicknames for people, but even I was surprised by the dress comments last night. I don't know why he's surprised, because this is very much in line with the Donald Trump playbook, but there is this reality setting in on Capitol Hill that Trump as the nominee means it's going to come with some criticism, some rhetoric that they are not comfortable with, even if they are defending him and endorsing him, and they're going to have to respond to that. And and to your point, Josh, about game understanding game, she really is continuing to go after him. She did have a an event last night in uh, in South Carolina, and she continued to go after him on his mental acuity. He was confused, but it also goes back to why I've continued to push for mental competency tests for anyone over the age of 75. He said that he would take one and he'd challenge me to one and that he would beat me. Maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. But what I said is, okay, well, if that's the case, then get on a debate stage and let's go. 
Uh, it would have been maybe a little more interesting to see some of this feistiness from any of Trump's rivals before he had effectively sewn up the nomination, as he appears to have done. Uh, but it's, there's no question that it's getting under Trump's skin. Um, Haley said that he was lashing out because he feels threatened. I think that is one of the two times Trump tends to lash out. Mm -hmm. So when he feels threatened, the other time is when he feels he's doing well. Mm -hmm. So the lashing out is the normal MO for Donald Trump. We're going to see him pull out all the stops, use, use every possible tactic against Haley in the next couple of weeks, except for debating her. And, and she is apparently trying to make money uh, off of some of his attacks on her. She's selling T-shirts that say barred permanently on her website. And uh, that's probably not a surprise because this is where we are in the campaign. I want to put something out there and you don't have to weigh on, in on this. I want to have these uh, fine gentlemen weigh in on it. And this is a, a great piece by Guy Trebay in the New York Times today. And it's called Male Vanity as Political Weakness. Few barbs have consistent power to sting the vanity of men at any age than the ones that cast doubt on their potency. Haley's age-biting strategy has at least one instructive effect, which can be clocked every time Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump reverts to mispronouncing her name. Does anyone believe Mr. Trump thinks Nikki Haley is called Nimbra, his garbled version of Nimrata, her birth name? Or is it just as likely that his supposed error is a tell for his wounded vanity? Well, former President Trump has certainly gotten uh, frustrated over the years when strong women have attacked him politically. I mean, we've, we've seen that over and over and over again. I don't think that's saying anything that's yeah, too stunning. It's not just the attack, it's the source of the that's attack. That's not saying anything yeah, that's, yeah. that's too stunning there. Um, the name also is true. I mean, he does that. You've seen him do that repeatedly with names, mispronounced names, repeatedly when he goes up on stage and talks about you know, uh, Barack Hussein Obama, and he repeatedly does that to get the crowd sort of riled up. I mean, that sort of is what you're seeing there, too. I mean, the name is, that's not, that's not totally surprising. Elaborate on that comment about the source of the attack. Well, because uh, I, I think that Trump has shown that he has more negative reactions to women who are criticizing him. This has been uh, something that we have seen throughout the last decade. We saw it at the very beginning of his 2016 candidacy when his target was Megyn Kelly and, to a lesser extent, Rosie O'Donnell. He does not like women criticizing him. And so Haley being the last person standing against him, being a woman, I think that that is going to cause him to lash out further in this campaign. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Up next, CNN exclusive reporting on the district attorney prosecuting Donald Trump in Georgia. Could she be forced off the case because of allegations of an affair with a fellow prosecutor? This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Now new exclusive reporting. The district attorney leading the 2020 election subversion case in Georgia may be called to testify at a hearing on whether she should be disqualified in the case. Fonnie Willis is just one of several witnesses who can expect to get subpoenas in the coming days. CNN's Zach Cohen is here with his reporting. Bring us up to speed. Yeah, Dana, sources are telling me and our colleague Nick Valencia that Fonnie Willis, her top prosecutor, Nathan Wade, and a host of others should expect to get subpoenas in the coming days. And, you know, defense attorneys in this case want Willis and Wade and those around them to testify on the stand in this hearing um, that's scheduled for next month. And the focus of that hearing is these allegations that Wade and Willis engaged in an improper romantic relationship and that Willis benefited financially from that relationship and Wade's employment on her team as um, you know this investigation into Donald Trump and his co-defendants was unfolding over the course of two years. And look, this is an escalation. This is a sets up a potential where, as you know, these hearings are live streamed on camera and the potential for Fawny Willis to have to take the stand and essentially defend herself against these allegations, which have not been substantiated with any sort of hard evidence yet, but have really been a distraction in this case so far. Look, Fawny Willis is expected to fight this. Um, she's already fighting a subpoena in Wade's divorce case that is separate from this. But, you know, like I said, this could raise the, the prospect of live witness testimony um, and the airing of potentially scandalous and controversial allegations in real time on live TV. Fascinating reporting from you and from Nick Valencia. Thank you so much for that. Let's bring in CNN legal analyst and former U.S. attorney Michael Moore, who joins us from the state of Georgia. How significant a move is this? Well, I'm happy to be with you this afternoon. It's a significant move. I will tell you that's the problem uh, with what's happening in this case, and that is it's not necessarily the death blow to whether or not a case can move forward, but it's becoming a distraction and a circus. Uh, And that's what we're going to see, I think, at the hearing uh, that gets into this question. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all to see the judge sort of take control of this. And that is to say, look, we're not going to turn this into an episode of Knott's Landing uh, here in the courtroom. I want you as an officer of the court to stand up and tell me, are the allegations in the motion true? Are there, is there truth in the allegation? Then he might turn to Mr. Wade and say, without getting into the details of your personal uh, divorce proceedings, are the allegations in the motion true? And at that point, then we don't uh, get lost in this idea of just the relationship, but then they can begin to talk about things like, you know, was he qualified to come on? Was there a reason that his oath was not properly mm-hmm. filed? Was there a delay there for some reason? Those things. And so that's, that's what I think we'll see uh, at the hearing. Knott's Landing, just for um, our viewers who might not be familiar with that, just turn on any, any Bravo Real Housewives and you'll have the same analogy. <laughs> I, I, I appreciated the Knott's Landing reference there. Uh, the judge is set to hear this matter next month. That's uh, what Zach and, uh, and Nick are reporting here. What is at stake here? I mean, 
we understand that one of the questions, and you just alluded to this, is she could be taken off the case. But it's a lot mm -hmm. more than that. It's about how the case is, it's how it's going to be tried, but it's also how it's going to be viewed because this is such mm -hmm. a high wire act. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. What One of the duties of a prosecutor is to really maintain the integrity of the investigation. And the reason you do it is because you want people on both sides of the political spectrum or the ideo ideological line to have confidence in what you're doing. They may not always agree, but at least they can have confidence that the decisions you're making are based solely on the case and the evidence that's presented before you, that you've essentially followed the facts and the law uh, as, you've, as you've moved forward. This distraction has given the detractors of the case a real foothold. Uh, it has given them the ammunition. Basically, you've put the stones in their hands for them mm -hmm. to throw at the case. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's also going to happen, we see, with the Georgia legislature. This will be the poster child as they talk about the rogue prosecutor bill, that they want to be able to come in and have prosecutors removed from their posts. And so it's not, it's, it is not it is not on its face enough to terminate the case. I'm confident of that, and I don't think there's a chance in the world a judge would do that. Right. But I think what he could do, Frankly, what I would advise the district attorney to do would be simply to say, you know, something I've become a distraction. This case is bigger than me. I'm going to step back from this case. I'm going to ask Mr. Wade to step back from this case. Let a special prosecutor come in and handle it and you all move forward because this is about what happened uh, in the election. This is not about what happened in, in my situation. Yeah. And I think that will be a way to clean it up. And it, and it helps kind of put the case back on the on the tracks because they've just come off the rails lately. Well, we'll see if that's exactly what does take place. Thank you so much, Michael Moore. Appreciate your time. Great to be with you. You too. And coming up, we go to Capitol Hill, where the likely reality of Donald Trump as GOP nominee is firmly setting in and setting up Senate Republicans for potential, potential failure in their scramble for a border security and Ukraine bill. We have more new reporting just into CNN, this time from our Capitol Hill team. Senate Republicans, at least some of them, are furious that Donald Trump may have killed a potential bipartisan immigration deal. It's part of their new reality, as Trump is all but certain to be the presidential nominee. They believe they can't do anything that undermines him, even if it means depriving them of a key legislative achievement on a critical issue that they've been negotiating for months. CNN's Manu Raju is part of that team responsible for the great reporting. He joins me live from Capitol Hill. Manu, what's the latest? Yeah, there are real concerns here in the Capitol that no immigration deal will get accomplished this year, even as Republicans have been clamoring for action to clamp down on the surge of migrants at the southern border. And with it, if there is no immigration deal, no aid to Ukraine, no aid to Israel, no aid to Taiwan, because Republicans have said that those the emergency aid package must wait until they deal with the border first. But Donald Trump has weighed in privately and publicly, made clear that Republicans should kill this issue, should kill this deal if it does not go as far as he likes. And in fact, he says it needs to be a perfect deal. It needs to be, quote, everything that they want. But Democrats control the Senate, Democrats control the White House, and a bipartisan deal will almost certainly not pass muster with the former president. And a bipartisan deal could give Joe Biden a campaign issue in heading into November, something Trump does not want at this moment in the campaign season. And talking to Republican senators today, it is very clear they are furious at the prospects that this could collapse and are saying this is all about campaign politics.
I think James Langford's been working uh, very hard to secure the southern border uh, to give the next president, whomever it is, uh, more authority so that we can secure the southern border. So anything that interrupts that negotiation, uh, I think, would be tragic. I hope no one is is trying to uh, take this away for campaign purposes. Do you think this is what he wants, the issue, Donald Trump? This is why he's doing it? I I think the border is a very important issue for uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and the fact that he would communicate to uh, Republican senators and Congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is uh, is really appalling. Now, I just spoke to Senators James Langford and Senator Chris Murphy, two members who have been trying to negotiate that bipartisan immigration deal. They say they're still going to try to cut a deal. They said that Murphy told me next 24 to 48 hours will be critical to see if there's any viable path forward. But, Dana, as you know, even if they cut a deal, they got to put it together, put it on the floor, get the votes. That means Republican votes to, uh, that would require 60 in the United States Senate. Then the Republican-led House, which is very much aligned with Donald Trump position on the issue, which is why so many people are, are, are bracing for the reality that Donald Trump may have killed this bipartisan emerging proposal to deal with these key issues and they may have to deal with it next year because of campaign politics in the middle of all of it. Down. Manu, such great reporting. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Let's talk about this with the panel. Melanie, you too are a member uh, of this reporting team with all of this, uh, this great stuff. And I, I just want to underscore the, the sort of headline here, which is Donald Trump has such a, a grip on the party, which that's that's not new, but he has even more uh, power now that he is inching even closer to being the presumptive Republican nominee. And he would rather have, and this is something he is communicating to his fellow Republicans in Congress, don't make the border better because it will give Joe Biden a win and it will hurt me. I'd rather have the issue. Yeah, I mean, it's pure raw politics is what it is. And a lot of Republicans probably are saying this privately, don't want to say it out loud. Now it's coming out in public that this is how Trump feels about it. And they are following his orders because he is likely going to be the nominee. They are very reluctant to do anything that is seen as undermining him or crossing him. A lot, a lot of cases, they're driven more by fear than wanting to please him. And You know, to be honest, Dana, this is a really familiar dynamic for Republicans who served while Trump was in office. He had the power to completely blow up or derail legislation with the, you know, simple click of a tweet or a phone call. And we saw that continually every single day. And now, as it looks increasingly likely that his nomination is inevitable, this is the reality that Republicans are dealing with. It's so true. But I just think that just to emphasize once again, this is the issue that Republican voters in pretty much every state that we've seen think is the number one issue. And I'm not Pollyanna. Like, I've seen this before. I covered many immigration uh, negotiations on Capitol Hill that failed because of politics. But there is, they are on the cusp of doing something in a bipartisan way that could actually make the border better. And he doesn't want it. Well, he wants his campaign this fall to be almost not solely about immigration, but it will be the number one issue that he talks about in his campaign. And he wants the scenes of, you know, things being totally out of control of the border. And he has a lot of data right now that help us his campaign. You know, the record number of crossings that are yeah. coming into America, even some Democrats, I think, privately are fretting. You look at what's happening in New York and all of these other cities. And I think Trump wants it to be as bad as possible. 
uh, going into the fall for his campaign. And we've seen him do this repeatedly with senators, though. I mean, they, they try to get bipartisan deals, and then he often attacks these deals, just as, as Melanie said. The other thing to me that's super interesting about this is for a long time in the House, you have a lot of these members who actually like Trump. In the Senate, most of these members yeah. are not fans of Trump, right? They really do not want him to be the nominee again. They sort of are begrudgingly having to deal with him again. And you can almost hear the palpable frustration of yes, their voice to totally. realize that all of a sudden this guy, they, they don't really like much. There's a few of them that do, but a lot of them really Espe don't. Especially the top Republican right. in the Senate, Mitch, Mitch McConnell, McConnell, who... Go ahead. Yeah, the, 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 their strategy of not doing anything about Trump turns out remarkably not to have worked. And so now they are left with the consequences of it. But I think, you know, Trump may have killed this deal, but it was already on the sickbed. You know, we shouldn't forget that there are a lot of substantive concerns where a lot of Repu the Republicans most concerned about immigration on the Hill were the ones who were saying this is inadequate. And more than that, they think the president already has the authority that he needs he just doesn't have the will. And if that's your view, you're probably less concerned about the law, mm -hmm. changing the, the law than changing the president. Just to play devil's advocate, isn't any compromise legislation inadequate? By definition, you have to come together and you're not gonna make the hardliners on the right well, happy, you're not gonna make right. the hardliners on the left happy. If the goal is perfection from your point of view, which is yeah. apparently what Trump has been saying, yeah. then if, yeah, then no, no yeah. compromise by definition will work. Okay, so let's just quickly talk about the Mitch McConnell of it all, because um, your reporting and others is that he is, seems to be understandably because of what you said about them not being the biggest fan of Donald Trump in the Senate, uh, sort of pained about the reality setting in of Donald Trump uh, likely being his party's nominee. And let's just give an example, a couple of examples of why, about what Donald Trump has said, has said about Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell's it a disaster. Right. The guy's a disaster, no. the old crow. They were put in and he had to give them to the old crow. The old crow, the old broken down crow. Mitch McConnell is the least popular Politician. Then you had the old crow come out and say, oh, we don't have good candidates. We don't have oh, yeah. a while ago. That's Mitch McConnell, who's the worst thing we have in the Republican Party. He's absolutely the worst. This is the guy who is, seems to be headed for the Republican nomination and the top Republican in the United right. States Senate and has been for some time. You you watch this dynamic, report on this dynamic every day. Yeah, and also Donald Trump has attacked Mitch McConnell's wife, we should also point out. Who used to work for him. Who used to work for him, In deranged and racist terms. <laughs> yes, so with Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, obviously their relationship has completely soured since January 6th. It is hard to imagine that if Donald Trump becomes president that Mitch McConnell can remain or would even want to remain as GOP leader. Now, there are other key Republicans who do have a good working relationship with Trump, including the head of the Senate GOP campaign arm. So there are people that can work with Trump, but it's not Mitch McConnell. And there are a lot of questions swirling around the Capitol right now about can we keep Mitch McConnell as our leader if he has zero relationship, in fact, an animosity with each other in the future. And that is the question that I think is really underlining this idea that Trump is coming back into the fold. So interesting. Okay, everybody stand by because coming up, talk of the economy's demise has been greatly exaggerated. That, of course, is the message coming loud and clear from the Biden campaign. We do have evidence of that with a new blockbuster GDP report sending stocks to record highs. The question, are Americans finally beginning to feel it? 
talk about that next. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Breaking news, former top Trump White House aide Peter Navarro was just sentenced to four months in prison for defying a congressional subpoena. CNN's Caitlin Polance joins me now. Caitlin, what happened at that sentencing? Yeah, this was a long sentencing hearing for Peter Navarro, that former White House aide who had worked on the coronavirus response, but then also was publicly talking about contesting the election results after the 2020 election for Donald Trump. Peter Navarro, today in D.C.'s federal court, he received a four-month sentence for jail time from Judge Amit Mehta. He also was fined $9,500. And Mehta boiled it down to the fact that Navarro was more than happy to talk publicly about what he was doing after the 2020 election. He wrote a book about it. He did media appearances. But he would not talk to the House. And this prosecution was about contempt of Congress, that he didn't show up for testimony or even make any meaningful attempt to negotiate testimony, and that he never turned over any documents when the House Select Committee had subpoenaed him. Here's some quotes from Judge Mehta speaking directly to Peter Navarro at the end of this sentencing, right before he gave him that amount of time. They had a job to do, Congress, and you made it harder. It's really that simple. It wasn't a kangaroo court. The public could see that. You are not a victim. You are not the object of a political prosecution. These are the circumstances of your own making. Now, Peter Navarro did speak in court to the judge. He said he was torn on what to do because he had talked to Donald Trump, thought maybe there would be executive privilege. He's going to be appealing now, just like Steve Bannon, another person who was prosecuted for the very same thing related to the January 6th investigations. Thank you so much for that reporting, Caitlin. And now we go to Wisconsin. President Biden is getting out of Washington today. He's going there to pitch Americans on Bidenomics. There are even more signs that his economic policies may be working. We learned that the economy grew by 3.3% in the fourth quarter, and that is far higher than expected. Arlette Signs is already in Wisconsin. Arlette, what are we likely to hear from the president today? Well, Dana, President Biden will be bringing his economic pitch here to Wisconsin as he is eyeing a general election matchup with former President Donald Trump. And here in Superior, the president will have a chance to talk about something and potentially needle Trump on something that he wasn't able to accomplish in his four years in office, and that is passing an infrastructure bill. Biden will be here just a few miles away from Blatnick Bridge, uh, saying that he will uh, be promising to deliver these $1 billion in federal funding to repair that bridge that's aging. It currently connects uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota. It's one of those examples that the president is trying to show to voters of his policies actually in action. Of course, as you mentioned, the Biden team is watching some of these bright spots in the economy and hoping that they will start to move in their favor. They're looking at dropping gas prices, um, the fact that stock markets uh, is going up, and also that consumer sentiments are improving. In the end, they are hoping that some of those more upbeat moods about the economy 
economy will eventually also translate into better feelings about the president's handling of economic issues. But so far, he has been unable to break through uh, with uh, voters who have a negative perception of his handling of the economy. A, a recent poll found that, that less than a third of voters approved of the way that the president has been handling economic issues. Now, the Biden team is also eager to try to draw some further contrast with Trump as they are eyeing that general election matchup. And that will be key in a state like Wisconsin. Uh, it's part of that so-called blue wall that helped Biden get into the White House back in 2020. He will need states like this, uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania, in order to secure a second term. And part of that will be trying to make this economic argument, especially to working class voters, which both Biden and Trump are vying for. Thanks, Arlette. That sets us up perfectly for our next segment, which is about President Biden spending a lot of time in Wisconsin this year, along with Michigan and Pennsylvania. Keeping those states in his column forms the backbone of his campaign's electoral strategy. CNN political director David Chalian is here at the Magic Wall. Show us on the map what we're talking about. Yeah, Dana, you know, I'm not big on predictions. One prediction I'm going to make is that the residents of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania are going to get more Joe Biden visits this year than any other states in the union. That, that's a prediction I will make. This is that blue wall. This is the blue wall that Donald Trump busted through to win the White House and defeat Hillary Clinton in 2016. And it's the blue wall that Joe Biden restored in 2020 that delivered him to the White House. And it is very, very difficult to find a viable path for Joe Biden to be reelected without keeping this blue wall intact. Let's take a look at the standing right now at where things are in Michigan. This is Joe Biden's current weakest state in our poll from December. He's down 10 points, 50% to 40% against the president. So no easy thing to keep that blue wall blue. Uh, a little bit better news for the president in Pennsylvania earlier this month. Quinnipiac University has him within, you know, no clear leader. This is basically a dead heat race, 49% Biden, 46% Trump, when you consider the margin of error there. And in Wisconsin, you see a similar pattern where Arlette just was, 47% for Biden, 45% for Trump, no clear leader, well within the margin of error in these critical battleground states. Dana, look, this is the 2020 map with the new electoral counts after reapportionment. That means that uh, given those new counts, Biden starts with 303 to Trump's 235 in the 2020 map. Here's what I mean about the most direct route, though. Take a look at the Sunbelt states. Two of three, Biden flipped from red to blue last time around. What if they revert back to red? Georgia and Arizona. And we know the problems that Joe Biden's having with Latino voters big in Nevada and his uh, poll numbers there are not great. If those go to Trump this time around, Look at what happens to the electoral count. Biden wins barely at 270 to 268 for Donald Trump. And that's if he keeps that blue wall, which is no certain thing. I would just note, if this is the scenario, Dana, that also means that this one congressional district in Nebraska, Omaha, would need to still stay in Joe Biden's column. Otherwise, if it flips red, you're at a 269-269 tie. The race goes to the House and likely Donald Trump would be president in that scenario. I mean, this is the thing. I'm so glad that you did all of that because that is not out of the realm of possibility of what, we, what you just showed. And it's kind of mind boggling. Uh, thank you so much, David. Sure. We're gonna probably be doing this over and over again in the next few months. And I look forward to every minute of it. <laughs> uh, and my panel is back here. Uh, 
you know, when you look at the blue wall that David Wish is showing us, and you think about President Biden as a candidate versus other Democrats, that was his strength. The reason he rebuilt it is because of like what he got yesterday. He got the union, the UAW uh, endorsement. He has historically appealed to the working voters. The question is with the economy the way it is and the feeling about the economy now, whether that's going to stick. I do think that perceptions of the economy are going to be the decisive issue here. I don't know that Biden or any president has the power to change those perceptions, but there are some signs, for example, the increased consumer sentiment that they might be changing sort of on their own. And he can change the perception of himself as being somebody who is, you know, laser focused on the economy. And I think that that as much as changing perceptions of the economy is what this tour is actually accomplishing or trying to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, if you look at a lot of campaign operatives, they sort of track right track, wrong track as one of the key messages, key metrics of whether they think their candidate's going to do well as an incumbent. And I think a lot of what the economics going to matter is what mood are people in sort of when they're going to the polls, right? Are they really looking for drastic change? Do they feel like they need drastic change or not? So we'll see if any of those sentiments uh, seep in uh, to make that change. But if the, if, if the economic numbers moved where more people thought the country was on the right track, which right now a lot of them don't, then maybe that is that accrues big time favorably for Biden. And I'm sure you're hearing this from Biden sources like I am. They argue that the right track, wrong track, which is really the whole ball game when it comes to predictors, is not only about the economy, it's about fear of another Trump campaign, another Trump presidency. Now, that might be a hopeful uh, yeah. prediction, but it is something that they're considering. Absolutely. And you're starting to see the Biden campaign turn up the heat and try to turn up the contrast with Donald Trump as it looks like he is going to be the nominee. I think that's part of the visit today. Like Arlette said, he's trying to needle Trump on an issue, infrastructure, which he was unable to achieve when he was president. And so you're going to start seeing that a lot more, not just on the economy, but on a whole host of other issues when it comes to abortion, reproductive rights, democracy. They really want to draw that contrast with Trump and remind voters what it was like to have Trump as president. Great discussion. Thank you, one and all. Up next, women, politics, and the Barbie Oscar slight. A word about Barbie and the snubs ricocheting through Barbie land and the real world. Now, I know the Oscar nominations came out a few days ago, but we've been a bit busy here at Inside Politics in New Hampshire with the primary there and all. But a social media post from Hillary Clinton caught our attention and we wanted to share it. Quote, Greta and Margot, while it can sting to win at the box office but not take home the gold, your millions of fans love you. You're both so much more than knuff. Now, maybe the Academy voters should have listened harder to America Ferreira's monologue, which did earn her an Oscar nod. Part of it applies here. Quote, you have to be a career woman, but also always be looking out for the other people. You have to answer for men's bad behavior, which is insane, but if you point that out, you're accused of complaining. Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie are not complaining. Their class and grace and talent all speak for itself. We see you. Thanks for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after the break. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.